This is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. So good to have you with me. Why don't you open up your Bible to Romans chapter 11. You know, through the ages, stories, novels, movies featuring love triangles are ever so popular. I know my wife has been into some of these movies of recent vintage, My Best Friend's Wedding, Julie Roberts, um, even Titanic, you could say. The Notebook, so po- I haven't seen that one, but it's very popular amongst uh, some of the ladies, and I guess maybe some of the guys too, I don't know. It's uh, Take Your Wife to a Romantic Comedy. Uh, at any rate, uh, Casablanca is probably the most noteworthy of all those films, and one of the things that Scott, uh, scholar Scott Hahn says about Romans chapter 11 is that really Paul is trying to set up a bit of a love triangle uh, in order to make... God's people, Israel, his original bride, a little bit jealous of what's going on with the Gentiles, uh, that new gal on the block, and in the hopes, in the hopes that there can be a great big reunion. (laughs) We'll find out what that's all about. Let's uh, read Romans chapter 11. We'll pick it up where we left off with verse 11. Paul writes this, So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay, let's stop there and uh, break it down a little bit. So even though Many of the Israelites have failed to accept Jesus as Messiah, though many have. The vast majority have not. Paul is really hammering home here that a lot of them could still come back. And we we can't uh, rule out that possibility. And the same is true, by the way, of fallen away Catholics in, in the new age of the church. They can come back. We should never give up hope about anybody. So this idea when he says that through their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. As Scott Hahn says, quote, Israel's failing has created an opportunity for other nations to enter into a saving relationship with the Lord. And this was frequently Paul's missionary experience, end of quote. It's very true. In his own life, Paul experienced this because, as you'll say later, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. But the first thing he did was try to reach his fellow Jews. Whenever he was on the road, whenever he was preaching, the first thing he would do in every city and every town is go to the synagogue and try to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And in Acts chapter 13, you can look this up on your own. When he's in Pisidian Antioch, he kind of gives, Paul gives essentially his first homily, his first sermon. He's at the synagogue, Paul and Barnabas are there, and they're, they're visitors and, and all the guys there are like, hey, if you guys have something to say to us, go for it. The pulpit is yours. And so he preaches this incredible homily, as it were, about how 
Jesus as Messiah fits into God's plan of salvation, and people just laugh up. They love it. And they're like, can you come back next Sabbath and preach again? He's like, absolutely. So the next time, the place is jam-packed. But several of the Jewish leaders got a little bit jealous about this, and so they riled up the crowds against Paul. We see this pattern repeating itself again and again and again. In the next chapter in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium. Same thing happens. And then in chapter 18, he goes to Corinth. And that's where he finds Priscilla and Aquila. And they, they were tent making together by trade, sort of supporting our, themselves that way. And it says that he argued in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks so there are a lot of Gentiles hanging out in the synagogues, too, who are looking for God. And they were really glad to hear Paul's words. And then in Acts chapter 28, Paul goes to Rome, and he, and he speaks to the Jewish community there as well. So Paul is doing that in his own ministry, but also, also, as we've been talking about, much of Israel is now scattered among the Gentiles anyways, because the northern tribes kind of disappeared. They became quote-unquote lost, but they really weren't lost. They just intermarried, intermingled with the Gentile nations around them. So it's very hard to separate now Jew and Gentile. When you go and reach these Gentiles around Israel, then you are kind of bringing back Israel as well, because all the 10 tribes of the north are kind of hidden within the Gentiles in a certain sense. And so God has to reach out to the Gentiles to get all of Israel to come back. But this was always kind of his plan in the first place, as he said to Father Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed through him. And so this is really, really um, God's plan being fulfilled in the time of the church. And then this whole idea of jealousy, Han gives this example of a love triangle. He says, quote, when a woman learns that her beloved has diverted his affections to another, she experiences the anger and jealousy of offended love. But there is another side to jealousy. The Greek verb parazelu can mean not only provoke to jealous anger, but also inspire to emulation. The offended lover wants to win her beloved back. So she takes the steps necessary to recover what her rival has stolen away. The Lord wants Israel to experience the angst of seeing his mercy shown to the Gentiles but only so that Israel will be aroused to reclaim its birthright. Israel, he hopes, will be moved to emulate the Gentiles by coming to faith in Jesus. End of quote. So this idea of, of the love triangle that, hey, there's a hot new gal on the corner and her, her name is the Gentiles. And uh, hey, 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 don't forget about me over here. This is kind of an interesting and fun analogy uh, but the idea, of course, is that God ultimately has one bride, and it's all of his people, Jew and Gentile, together in the one church, his bride. So this is this is interesting, though, because Paul is basically saying, and he's used this analogy several times in the last little bit in Romans, that this holy jealousy, he wants to arouse it in his compatriots, that, hey, why, why do they get the blessings of the covenant? Why do they get the Messiah? I want in on this in the hopes that they will take a second, fresh look at Jesus. But of course... At the present time, that hasn't been the case. Some have, some, but many more have not. So let's look at the next verse here. This is uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Paul writes, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion 
mean? So this this whole idea that, hey, if if only that we can get everybody back, if we can get all of Israel to believe in the Messiah plus the Gentiles, wow, that's a really rich group. <laughs> And and this is this is amazing. We can get the whole world. And that's really what the Catholic Church is all about. Catholic means universal. Everybody. It's for all peoples, all nations, including Israel. Let's not forget about Israel. Israel is very very important to God, as as we'll see uh, going forward. So let's look at the next uh, couple of verses here, verses thirteen and fourteen of chapter eleven. Paul writes, "Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles." I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So he's kind of going to talk to the Gentiles in the church at Rome just for a little bit because he, he wants to make sure that they don't become haughty, they don't become prideful, they don't think that they've somehow replaced God's people Israel uh, in God's heart. It's, it's simply that God has room for everybody in his heart. So Paul's mission was, of course, to the Gentiles, but also, as he says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, well, this is actually God saying this uh, to Ananias. He's kind of afraid, you know, he hears about Paul, the great persecutor, you know, being blinded on the Damascus road. And, and God is saying to Ananias, don't be afraid to talk to this guy, Paul. You've got to bring him in. You've got to make sure he gets baptized. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So the sons of Israel are part of the deal as well. And so everybody is in view here with God. And, and, and Scott Hahn makes an amazing point here. It's it, This is really interesting because in biblical history, Israel in the Old Testament, God's people was always in trouble with God for adopting pagan ways, the ways of their pagan neighbors. They wanted what the Gentiles had. Why do they get to have kings and we don't have a king? All right, all right. I'll, this isn't a great idea, but I'll give in to you. Okay, you can have Saul. Thank you so much. Uh, Saul started off well, turned out to be a dud in the end. And then, of course, there was David and the Davidic kingship, all that sort of stuff. But they were always going after Gentile ways. And here's what Scott Hahn says, he says it's really, it's a divine irony because he says, quote, in biblical history, it's precisely Israel's weakness for imitating the nations and their religious cults that landed the covenant people in exile among the Gentiles in the first place. Now, at long last, God has made it safe for Israel to emulate the Gentiles in their embrace of the gospel, end of quote. So the irony is rich. They want to be like the Gentiles. They want to adopt their pagan ways. And, and, and because of their unfaithfulness, they actually got carried away into Gentile lands in the exile, carried away into slavery. And now, guess what? It's safe for them to emulate the Gentile ways when these Gentiles are accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah. How about that? Uh, what an irony. It's a great point. So uh, God's got a great sense of humor when it comes to the grand scope of history. Let's look at uh, verse 15 here. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I'm your host, Kale Clark. We're looking at St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 11:15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So because of the fact that many have rejected Jesus as Messiah in the first century Jewish world, the Gentiles are able to come in 
But these Israelites can come back. They can also come back too, and the whole world can be reconciled to God. And, and he says, well, what will this mean other than life from the dead? Well, there's a couple, there's a couple things in view here. Baptismal resurrection is one thing, as Han mentions, and, and Paul alluded to this back in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, when he wrote, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just being baptized, it's kind of like a death and resurrection. It's like coming back from the dead, coming back from spiritual death, uh, and getting the new life of God in the Spirit. But also, he's probably talking about the bodily resurrection at the end of time, too. And also, there's no question that he probably has in mind the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there's this famous vision about the valley of dry bones. I'm just going to read a little bit of this to you. It says, The hand of the Lord, this is Ezekiel 37, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me round among them. And behold, there were very many upon the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and you and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And so, as he continues on in, in this vision, he, he sees this a rattling, you know, the rattling of bones, and the bones come together, sinews are put on, flesh is put on the bones again, and this great army arises uh, back from the dead, as it were. And so th this is really not only a, a sort of a, a bit of a prophecy about the resurrection of all people at the end of time, but this idea that, that God bringing life back, to, spiritual life back to his people, Israel, who would kind of experience spiritual death among the nations, uh, that, that's certainly in view here as well. So... The first fruits, that's what's up in the next verse, uh, verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So this idea of the first fruits, Paul has talked about whenever the, the first converts happen in any city, in any town in which he's preaching, he calls them the first fruits of the gospel in that particular city. And so and he starts talking about this idea of the olive tree. And this, this is what's... What's um, absolutely in view in this, in this next little section, which we're going to read together. So open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. This is a famous analogy from St. Paul. He says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, 
neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So this this is a powerful analogy by Paul here. And he's basically trying to say to these Gentiles in the church at Rome, don't be haughty. Don't think that you've somehow replaced God's people, Israel. That, that This is a doctrine that we have to uh, make sure that we don't buy into as Catholics. This is a very popular in, in some Christian communities, this doctrine of supersessionism. This idea that the church has replaced Israel. Uh, Israel, Israelites are no longer useful to God. Pff, he's moved on. That is not the case. The, the church is is Israel with the Messiah having come. It's Israel being opened up to all the nations as was originally intended. So he uses this um, image of the people of God being like a tree. And this idea of the, the tree is just all throughout the scriptures. It's in the Psalms. It's in the New Testament as well. God in in Jesus talks about the parable of the mustard seed, this tiny little seed that grows into this huge tree. So the kingdom of God is a tree, is all throughout the scriptures, and also so is this image of Abraham as the root. And it's not always in the Bible, but in some Jewish writings like the book of Jubilees, it is there, this idea of Abraham being the root of God's people. kind of started with him in building his family of faith. And so the the Jews are seen as the natural branches of, of this original tree, and Gentiles are grafted in. I'm not a gardener. I have no expertise in this at all. Believe me, I don't have a green, green thumb. But it is true that you can graft a tree or a branch of a tree from, from another kind of plant onto a certain tree, and it can kind of grow together. I don't know exactly how all this works, but it is possible. And, and Paul uses this analogy to show how the Gentiles can be brought into that original tree, the people of God, but not to be haughty about their new position because, as he says, they can be cut off. And if you don't continue in God's kindness, you can be cut off. So Paul does think that people can lose their salvation. Um, we've been talking a lot in this series about the elect, are some predestined to heaven, predestined to hell. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He wants everybody to go to heaven but some people, if they don't persist in God's friendship, in the state of grace, they are in danger of not making it. They, they can be cut off from the tree and cut themselves off, the branch that they're sitting on. But God can put everything back together if we repent and turn back to him. So we'll continue on with Romans in the next episode of The Faith Explained. But right now, let's pop into and open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Okay, as we open up our Q&A mailbag, you can send me your question too. The email address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. So today's question comes from Lori, who writes this. She says, why do we pray to saints when in the Bible it says we should only pray to God? 
If God wants saints to hear our prayers, then wouldn't he allow it? Shouldn't we pray only to God? Thanks. Signed, Lori. Well, Lori, thank you so much for your question. Uh, it is a common question, of course. Does the Bible have anything to say against this idea of asking for the intercession of the saints? And, and the actual answer is no. Obviously, I think it should be clear that yes, we should pray to God. Absolutely, we should do that. But we can also ask the saints to pray for us. And, and people who, who um, and I don't know, Lori, whether you're coming from a, a Protestant Christian background or not, but usually when people have an issue with the intercession of the saints, they're, they're coming from a good place. They, they, they don't want to detract from any of the glory that is due to, to God alone. But if it's God, God's idea, if God himself set up this practice, that we don't need to be concerned about this. God wants us to do it. It's part of his will. Another objection that sometimes people have um, coming from a non-Catholic background is they think that the intercession of the saints has something to do with the condemned practice in the Old Testament of necromancy. And this is con trying to con consult or conjure up the spirits of the dead. Now, this is, a, this is a bad practice to be sure, but what's going on there is that people are trying to dredge up the spirits of the dead in order to get them to somehow be soothsayers, uh, tell, tell us the future, tell us what the winning lottery numbers are going to be. That's not what's going on when it comes to the intercession of the saints. In fact, we're not asking them to foretell the future. We're asking them simply to pray for us. So when people bring up examples of 1 Samuel 28, when Saul, you know, he had his issues as king of Israel. He tried to conjure up the witch of Endor. That's, that's not at all what we're doing in the church when it comes to the intercession of the saints. So... Here's the deal. Um, we have to, first of all, discover what we, what we mean by certain words. And as Catholics, we, we have this expression, praying to the saints. It's not always super helpful. It's kind of the way we talk. What we really mean when we say that is that we're praying through the saints. We're asking them really to pray for us. It's intercessory prayer. And this word, by the way, has connotations of the old English word, pray. I, I, I pray you, I, I pray thee, you know, tell me this. How do I get to the market? Or whatever the case might be. I pray you. So so you're asking for help. And, and the same is true when we ask the saints for their help. We're not worshiping the saints. We only worship Almighty God. And in fact, even when you look at the second greatest prayer of all time, the greatest prayer being, of course, the Our Father, in terms of uh, verbal prayers, in terms of vocal prayers, um, then we have the, the second greatest prayer of all time, which is also in Scripture. It's the Hail Mary. And right there in the Hail Mary, we see this line, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. So we're asking Mary to pray for us. It's very clear she is not God. Uh, it's not at all detracting from the glory of God. She is. We're asking her to pray for us. So this is what we're doing when we ask any of the saints to do that. Now, now of course, uh, another big objection that people have is why not go straight to the top? Why not just pray straight to God? Why not bypass the saints altogether? Well, it's because for, for one thing, the New Testament commands Christians to pray for one another on earth. And in fact, there's there so many verses that 
talk about the great benefits that can come from that, especially if we if we get the saints among us to pray in uh, the book of James. In the letter of James, chapter 5, verse 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power, has great power. Now, if that's true of holy people on earth, who undoubtedly are also sinners, just like just like you and me, they have their issues, they, they may be living maybe more holy than you or I are, but but nonetheless, what, they're still sinners. What about those who have already stood in the presence of God? They're still alive. They're more alive than we are because they're with God in heaven. God cannot have sin in his presence. And so these have gone through the purification of purgatory. If necessary, if they're super holy on earth, they might have skipped right over purgatory. And so why not ask them to pray? Because they, they do... If we're to pray for one another on earth, why not get these guys to pray for us? Because the church is, yeah, we're in different phases depending on where you are. There's the church militant on earth, still fighting the battle. There's the church being purified in purgatory. And then, of course, there's the church in heaven, glorified, the angels and saints with Almighty God. But they do care about us. They do know what's going on with us. In Hebrews, it says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, almost like a stadium full of people cheering us on. They're aware of what's going on. And, and there's so many examples, too, uh, in, in the New Testament indicating that the saints do know what's happening with us. Uh, we can look at um, not only the book of Hebrews, but we can talk about Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8, it talks about the prayers of the saints being like incense that rises up to God. The smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. Well, what do you think these prayers of the saints are all about? Uh, they don't need the prayers. They're already in heaven with God. They're praying for us. They're praying for God's will to be done on earth. And, and even an interesting point that one writer brings up, in, in Luke's parable, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man doesn't make it to heaven. He's in the afterlife. He's in hell, but he's still concerned about his family still on earth. He's like, Father Abraham, please send somebody to warn my brothers that the afterlife is real. Well, if somebody in hell is concerned about people on earth, you better believe that the saints in heaven are concerned about you and I on earth and hoping that we'll get to where they are. And so this is really, really important for us to know. Uh, They can help us. They care about us. And we need to take advantage of their help, their intercession. And by the way, another objection that people often raise, how how can the saints even hear all these prayers, possibly comprehend them? How can Mary possibly hear all the millions of Hail Marys that are prayed all around the world every day, every rosary? How how, how is this to be processed? Um, She's not God. She's the greatest creature of all time, but she's not God. She's greater than the angels, greater than her, no one but God. But she, how could she process this? Well, number one, the saints are outside of time. They, they, they have more than all the time in the world because they are in eternity. So that's kind of a factor two. That's kind of a factor two. God has ways that we, we are not really aware of. And even through modern technology, uh, many people can communicate a lot of things all at the same time through the internet, through social media, through chat rooms. I'm pretty sure this can be sorted out in heaven. So uh, you don't need to worry about that. All right. Well, that's that's uh, hopefully an answer to your question, Lori, and I appreciate that question. It's a very good one. 
And if anybody else listening has a question for me on the Faith Explained, you can email me. The address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. Find me on Twitter at Kale Clark. And I'll catch you in the next episode of the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. God bless you.